But when I grew up, I grew up here in El Paso, Texas, born and raised, and I grew up at a church, at a different church here in El Paso, and through the whole period while we, were at, while we were at this church, you know, that was my church family, it was my church home, I loved being there. And then about middle school and high school, the church went through a lot of changes. We had changes in, in, in our pastoral leadership, we had other staff positions that were changing, members were coming and going, there was some dissension, a lot of strife that was happening inside the church, and during that time, my parents were very strongly considering finding another church. And I adamantly said for the whole period, no, this is our church family, these are our people, these are, th- th- this is our home, we can't abandon our family in times of need and of trouble, this is, th- this is where we need to stay and where we need to stick to it, and we have to stay in the gutters and, and endure through it. And then my senior year in high school, I started talking um, to now my wife, Veronica Veto, and we were both seniors at Franklin, go Cougars, and she invited me, um, you know, I had just found out that she was a Christian. She'd just gotten back from India. I found out that she was real serious about ministry. She was very involved in her youth group, and I was enamored. I was, I was captivated. And she said, Drew, do you want to come with me to Coronado? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I did. I came right here, and I've been here for the last eight years. I've been serving at this church, and um, truly I'm so honored to be able to be up here for, for the last eight years, I've been able to sit in the used to be pews in here, and, I've, and I sat in our youth room when Murray was the teacher, and, and I've learned at the feet of some awesome godly men and women and pastors. We have Pastor Dan and Pastor Alan, Pastor Mike. Now we have Pastor Stan. Y'all might remember years ago, Pastor Ricky Pearson, Pastor Murray Van Gundy, and, and it's, it is a whirlwind that now I'm able to stand up here and preach to you. It's crazy, but I am so, I feel so underqualified and ill-equipped to do this. But we all are in the kingdom of God. And I just would have you know how honored I am to be up here. And I believe that the Lord has given me a message that this church desperately needs. The church here, CBC, Coronado Baptist Church in El Paso, Texas, must hear. We've been talking about... Um, A lot of things in our high school and college ministries over the last six months, but we've been going through the pastoral letters. If you don't know what the pastoral letters, they're three letters that Paul wrote. The first letter that he wrote was to Timothy, and we call that 1 Timothy. The second letter that he wrote was to Titus, and we call that Titus. (laughs) The third letter he wrote was to Timothy again, and that's 2 Timothy. And what we're doing in in our student ministry is we're going through these three letters, and for the last six months, We've just gone through the first Timothy. And that's where I want us to be in today. So if you just go to your Bibles in First Timothy chapter 1, this skit that, that the students just put on, I so heavily relate to. This, it's like with some variation. It's my life. The pitfalls. Just talk to my parents. I, I was extreme. It, it was never mild times that I would go through. It was always extreme. I was either super on fire for the Lord. I became a Christian when I was six. When I was in seventh grade, I really understood for the first time what it meant to be a Christian and, and how great the love of God was, and, and, and that really captivated me. And so I, was, I would be really on fire, and then I'd go on a retreat, you'd be captivated by God, and then I'd go back home, months would go by, and then I would get involved back into the world, and through high school it was back and forth, getting, being extremely rebellious, doing extremely dumb things, getting in trouble, and then going back to youth camp and getting on fire for the Lord again. Pitfalls, <laughs> majors, that's how my life was. And whenever I came to this church, started attending it, Murray started, Pastor Murray Van Gundy, the last student pastor, he discipled me. 
took me under his wing. He took me with the youth ministry to Panama back in 2009. And I was set on a new trajectory. So when I graduated from high school, I, I did this thing called a DTS. If you're not familiar with DTS, it's Discipleship Training School. A lot of students in our ministry have come through our ministry and have gone on to do a DTS. Um, this DTS programs are with an organization called YWAM, which is Youth with a Mission. We, have, we actually support several missionaries here in our church um, that, that are positioned at YWAM bases all over the world, really. And, we, and I had the opportunity to do a six-month DTS, three months of training and three months of outreach. For my training, I had to go to Hawaii for three months, right? It was, off, it was brutal. Someone had, someone had to do it, right? And then for the last three months, I, I did my outreach in Mozambique in South Africa. And when I came back, having been in, in Mozambique, which at the time was the poorest country in the world as far as the demographic was there, I came back and I, I saw everything in America, and I, and I was super self-righteous, and I was indignant. I hated my mattress because it was too nice, right? So I'm like, oh, I have this big, beautiful mattress, and nobody has anything in these other worlds, and I was so mad, and I'm like, oh, Americans are so arrogant and stuck up and overprivileged, and they have no idea what they have. And I met with Murray, and I talked about this with him, and he essentially told me, Drew, chill out. Have you ever stopped to consider that maybe the Lord has given you blessings so that you could use those to further his kingdom? So I started to study. I started to learn. I started taking classes with Murray. I started studying other things about theology with Mike. I started to, to read more and, and to learn and, and grow in my, in my doctrine and in my theology. And at that time, if you would have talked with me, I, I, knew, I knew it all. Right? I knew I knew everything there is to know about defending the faith. And you know, I, I was so confident. I'm like, yeah, yeah, bring Stephen Hawking in. I'll have a debate with him and I'll convert him to Christianity. Yeah, easy. I'll do it, right? But the more and more that I've grown... I'm only 25 years old. I still have a lot more growing and learning to do. The more and more that I've grown, the more and more that I have to learn, the more and more that I really understand how limited that I am in my understanding. And especially, the more and more that I grow, the more and more I understand that it is not about me. It's not about us. It's not about us. When you read the letters of, Tim, of Paul, rather... You can really pick up on this idea that Paul's getting at. So, starting in 1 Timothy of chapter 1, verse 1 through 7, this is from the English Standard Version. If you want to read, read along with me, I'm starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. So, that's, this is a cool thing. Paul is writing to Timothy, and it's the, the, the way that he would write the pastoral letters are very different in style from any of the other letters that he wrote to, his, to the churches, right? Like Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Because he's writing personal letters to these individuals, to these men, that he had the cool privilege of discipling and mentoring and instructing and training. And as a side note right here, a really cool thing about the way that the kingdom of God works is through discipleship. It's this idea of us, when we have the awesome privilege to lead somebody to the Lord, to preach the gospel to someone, and they accept Christ, and then we can walk alongside of them and, and teach them more about Jesus and, and spur them on in faith and love and good deeds, we're able to say that these people, these, these precious souls, are our children in the faith. 
Whenever, uh, I don't know if you remember a few months ago, Herb Hodges was the man that discipled Pastor Mike. He came into town, did a conference, but the night before the conference started, we had this big men's gathering out at King's Kids Ranch, and Herb came, and he brought some of his disciples, and of course, Pastor Mike invited a lot of men in the church that he disciples, and then we brought other people that we discipled, and so on and so forth, and it was like this big spiritual family reunion of all these men, and we didn't even know each other for the most part, but we could look and and trace the lineage back to Herb and, and kind of see how we were related in the faith. And here's an interesting thought. If there was a way to do this, if we could date back our spiritual, spiritual lineage, all of us sitting in this room that, that can say with confidence that we are in the family of God, that we are Christians, we all date back to one of the original 12 disciples. That's how the kingdom of God works, through discipleship, through walking alongside someone and living life with them and showing them how to work out their salvation, the fear and trembling. So let's continue. Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So this point in Paul's ministry, we talk about Paul all the time. Right now, Pastor Mike is in Galatians. And, but if you don't know, just a quick background. Paul, formerly known as Saul, used to kill Christians, very intelligent person, Pharisee, studied under one of the most highly regarded teachers of the law during that era, Gamaliel. And he, he learned and he trained and he studied and he knew his stuff and he hated the fact that people were saying that Jesus is Lord. He's like, oh, that's blasphemous. That's not true. So he made it his mission to go and try to kill Christians. And so in Acts chapter 9, Saul is on the road to Damascus on his way to go kill some Christians. And of course, Jesus comes, and in effect, he knocks him off his horse, he blinds him, the glory of God shines around him. Paul takes the sin right before he's blinded, and then Jesus tells him, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he effectively says, stop. And Paul's like, oh, Saul at the time was like, okay. And then he goes and he gets his sight back. And over the next 10 years, he studies, he trains. His, Saul, his name, Saul, is changed to Paul. And then he starts planting churches. Right? He used to kill Christians, and then he started producing Christ believers. That's, that's what happens whenever the Lord grabs a hold of your life. So this isn't about 63, 64 AD, whenever he writes this letter. The year before, he was just imprisoned. He was captured because Emperor Nero at the time in the Roman Empire hated the fact that Paul would not be quiet about Jesus. And he was always trying to find ways to find him in faults and, and to try to arrest him and, and, and convict him of crime. And so he was in prison in Rome. And he's like, well, hey, I'm in prison now, so I'm going to write some letters. So that's when he writes to Philemon and he writes to the church in Philippi, to the Philippians and to the Colossians and to the Ephesians. And then when he's released that next year, in about 63, 64 A.D., he pins this letter to Timothy. In verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. He's in Ephesus. It's important, right? That's the same exact church that Paul planted years before that in Ephesus, the, the Ephesians that he writes to. Now, he, after he's trained and instructed and, and built up Timothy, he leaves him in Ephesus to pastor this church. And that's what this letter is. It's basically teaching him how to be a pastor, how to appoint his leaders, how to, to find who his help should be, to, to identify how he should approach 
rebuking people, and specifically the number one thing, and I, I, we say this every week with our students to kind of recalibrate their minds whenever we go through this, because we're going through all of these letters, is what's the main point that Paul is telling Timothy in 1 Timothy, and what is it? Get rid of false doctrine. I don't want any more of this false teaching, Timothy, so do something about it. And the, the false doctrine primarily, we talk about this all the time. Mike talks about it from this platform, but and it's certainly if, you, if you're familiar with any of Paul's letters, he's constantly talking about this one form of false doctrine and what certainly is addressed throughout his letters, but in 1 Timothy, is this idea of salvation by works. Right? If, if, you, if you jump down to verse 8 and 9 of 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and the sinners, unholy and profane. And he gives this list. Basically, he's saying the law is not for good people. The law is so that bad people can know that they're bad people. It's essentially what he's saying. And, and you might ask, well, Drew, what's the law? Well, the law is referring to the, the first five books of the Bible, also known as the, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And if you read through these five books, there are 613 written commandments. 248 of those are do's. Like, do this, be diligent to, to do this. And then, of course, the last 365, one for every day of the year, are don'ts. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, which, of course, we're very familiar with. And if you look at the history of Judaism, the, the, uh, of, of Jewish beliefs, rabbis, teachers of the law, they had all of these additional oral laws that were accumulated over the hundreds of years. And so by the time that we reach this point in the first century, there's over a thousand laws. And surely, if somebody stands next to these laws, it's not, hey, I'm going to match all of these perfectly in, in order to attain my good work. No, Paul is saying that the reason why there's all these laws is to show us that we need some help, that we're messed up, that we can't live up to what all of these laws are telling us to do. So that's one form of false doctrine. The other one, which isn't talked about as heavily in this passage, but certainly is very relevant today and is also a prevalent theme throughout Scripture, is this idea of universalism, right? Very relevant to us today. Everyone goes to heaven. And it's, it's disguised very well, you know, the love of God is so great. Yes. The sacrifice of Jesus is so powerful. Yes. That everyone is going to get to be in heaven. And I've even heard it preached from a platform, from a stage, from the pulpit before, not at this church, obviously, but at somewhere else, that from John 14, that, that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, and that in his Father's house there are many rooms and and he said and there's enough rooms so many rooms that there's enough for everyone and we're all going to have a place in heaven universal it doesn't matter how you go about your beliefs or even what you believe in none of that matters because all of us are going to be there in the end that's universalism the other one which we've which we've talked about in the last few weeks is relativism right others might say that truth is relative to every individual so what's true to me is true to me but if, if it conflicts with what's true to you, that, that's okay, because there's no, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Because God forbid I say something that offends you and, and, and doesn't agree with your way of thinking. 
right? There's multiple realities. And what I'm not saying is that we should be abrasive and, and dogmatic and, and rude and domineering about how we share the truth. What I'm talking about is the other side of the coin, is that people are so caught up in, in trying not to offend that everything is true. What's true to you, that's true for you, but it doesn't have to be true for me. Truth is relative. But in both of these cases, in both of these extremes, whether it's do, 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 good, good, good works in order to attain your salvation, and the other side is it doesn't matter what you do, you're going to be okay, and truth is truth to you. In both of these extremes, the underlying theme, which is flawed, is that it's all about us. Right? I, notice how much I say the word I, I have to do good so that I can attain my salvation and the other side, well, this is what I believe and, and, and this is how I feel and that's what I should do and, and it's true for me. In both cases, the fundamental flaw is that it's made all about us. We understand this as Americans, right? We can sit in a church like this and I can tell you it's not about us and we all agree with that, but, but we don't really live that way. That's just not how we've even been raised. You know, children are raised to, to, to thinking that they are the greatest and the best, and, it's, and, and, and they're cuckolded, and it's all about you, and, and, and it's something that we definitely struggle with, <laughs> that, that's very relevant to our society. And if you go down to verse 12, Paul addresses the opposite. It's not about us. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me, as faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But... I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. But the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are found in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom, and we've heard this before, Paul says this, of whom I am the worst or the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul is telling Timothy to watch out and get rid of false doctrine. And then it goes on in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is verse 5 of chapter 1. And the reason why Paul says this, his aim is to produce people whose sole desires are to reach people with the gospel and direct people towards Jesus in love. That is what this stewardship is. If you look back in verse 4, the, the, the stewardship, what is a steward? It's, it's somebody who watches over something. It's a caretaker. And understanding that that thing that they're watching over isn't, doesn't necessarily, it's not theirs. And, and, and if, we're, if we're called stewards of the gospel, we are entrusted with this incredible message of reconciliation. This incredible message that Jesus came, lived, died, and ascended up into heaven. He's interceding for us so that we can have life and be in, in, in heaven with God for eternity. And good stewards of the gospel are those that share it unrelentingly and in love. And then a warning is given in verse 6 and 7. 
Certain persons, by swerving away from these, have wandered into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make such confident assertions. So he says, now, yes, Timothy, get rid of the false teaching. We don't want any of that, but just know that, if, that our aim and our charge is to do it in love, with, with a good conscience and with sincere faith. Because if you don't do it that way, here's the struggle. Oftentimes, people wander off into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law, desiring to be right, desiring to be theologically correct in the way that they speak, without even remembering why they were doing it in the first place. So he gives them that warning. Now, if you can go with me, let's jump forward, fast forward 30 years, let's go to the book of Revelation. And remember, Paul told Timothy to remain in Ephesus. Timothy was, was pastoring and watching over the church in Ephesus. And if you go to Revelation chapter 2, I'll read 1 through 5. Before I do that, just a quick little background on Revelation. John is the, is the one who wrote the book of Revelation. And we can assume that it's the Apostle John, one of the three, Peter, James, and John. He also wrote the Gospel of John. One of, he, he referred to himself as the, as the beloved one, as, as the favorite, practically, of Jesus. And, and throughout his whole ministry, all of his friends around him are getting martyred, they're getting killed, they're being crucified for the faith, and they just they can't kill John. They keep trying to kill John, and they keep trying to, they, they try to stone him, they try to do all these things to him, and he just like won't die. And so they say, okay, we're going to put him on a little island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, just to shut him up and get him out of here, right? And so he's on this island, Patmos, and while he's there, Jesus appears to him, and he's like, hey, John, I would, I would, that would get my attention. Hey, John, hey, Jesus, write down what I'm going to tell you. And him being an obedient disciple, he said, okay. So he, wrote, he started writing down what Jesus told him to, to write down. And how Jesus starts is he first says a few things about himself and about his father, and then in chapter 2, he says, write these things words down, and then he talks about seven different churches that he wanted John to address. And, and these are Jesus' words. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 2 of, of Revelation. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, the same church, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works. This is what Brady, the, our Jesus, who stood up in the, the baptism up there, he read several passages that, that Jesus said, and, and this was the last passage that he read right here. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and check this, and have found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. And you've not grown weary. It's interesting. We see that Timothy was a very faithful disciple. The very thing that, that, that Paul told Timothy to get rid of in Ephesus, 30 years later, Jesus himself goes to John and says, Hey, tell this to the church in Ephesus. Good job in not having false doctrine. Good job in not putting up with false teachers. Timothy served faithfully, and he served well. But let's, let's look at verse 4. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent 
and do the works that you did at first. If you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 6 and 7, the very warning that Paul gives Timothy, that by people that, that do try to have sound doctrine, oftentimes they wander away into vain discussion, having forgotten why they're doing it in the first place. The very thing that Paul told Timothy would happen, happened. And that's the very thing that Jesus, 30 years later, needed to rebuke in the people at Ephesus. Hey, good job not having any false teaching, but this is what I have against you. You've abandoned your first love. Repent and do the works that you did at first. Remember what you did at first and, and repent and do those things again. It's incredible. Exactly what Paul told Timothy would happen happened in the church in Ephesus. And that's certainly relevant to this church, I would say. You know, I, I talked about it earlier. I've, I was able to sit at the feet of, of godly men and women that very, are very sound in their doctrine and have accumulated knowledge and they share it and you should know that this church is, is a, it's an awesome church so hopefully that's why you're here right now and we have great teachers and, and great teaching good theology, sound, biblical but wherever there is great theology sound, biblical teaching always follows the temptation and the presence of there not being very much zeal or passion and if that's not true about this church it's certainly true about several of us in sitting in this room right now that sure, we know all the things to say about our faith, but we often get caught up in frivolous, vain conversations, and we don't really remember why we're doing all of this to begin with. Repent. Do the works that you did at first. That's, that's what Jesus has to say. You've abandoned your first love. And uh, yesterday, whenever we were in our college ministry... We were, we were, I asked the question, uh, so y'all just like yell out verses to me that come to mind that you would consider gospel verses. Right? The, if, if we remember what happened at first, for all of us that can claim to be in the family of God, the message that, that got us into the family of God was, was the gospel. That Jesus came, lived, and died. Resurrected, and he ascended into heaven so that we could have life. And so I, I, talk, I was talking about the importance of the gospel. So, say some gospel verses. And, you know, they were saying Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 5. Pretty much the whole book of Romans. You just read that. The gospel's right there. And, and you know, we, we talk about this often, the gospel. But, guys, the gospel is not only necessary for salvation. The, the gospel is, is not only necessary for, for those that aren't saved in order for them to come into the family of God. The gospel is something that we need each and every day. The gospel is our life source. It's our daily bread. We need it. That should be something that you should wake up in the mornings to and minister to yourself, the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourselves. Right, I was talking earlier about a good steward of the gospel is one who shares it unrelentingly and in love. Well, the one who shares it unrelentingly and in love is someone who's familiar with the gospel. And someone who's familiar with the gospel is someone who is constantly reminding themselves with it. And a good way to, to, to um, personify this practical way of ministering to yourself, if we look at King David, often when you look at a lot of his writings in the book of Psalms, it almost seems like he has like multiple, multiple personality disorder. He's like always talking to himself. 
And if you really think about it, you're like, that's kind of weird. So if you, if you go to like Psalm 103 and read that, he's like, bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me, praise his holy name. He's talking to himself. But this is true. We're sitting in a place here right now, and we do this every single week, and, and people come up here and they teach things, and, and we can be so encouraged and, and so inspired, and there can be awesome worship, and you can just feel so good. And then you walk out of these church, the church building, out of these doors, get into your car, and then ah, your families are fighting with each other. You know? And, and you completely have just totally disregarded everything that happened. We are forgetful people in nature, and we have to remind ourselves of the gospel on a daily basis. When you wake up, let your words say, Lord, would you just captivate me right now in your love? Draw near to me. Your nearness is my good. That's what your word says. And if your word says it, it's a promise. And you say that you are a God who will not break his promises. Draw near to the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this glorious gospel, this message of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says that for our sake, he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. It's unbelievable. Yet what we do is we, we forget and we abandon our first love. And Jesus is telling all of us in here, repent and do the works you did it first. Enjoy the presence of God. Immerse yourself in the gospel. Be lost in his presence, overwhelmed by his love. And you'll have a lot of fruit in your life. I promise you that. Back in 2010, this is whenever I was still trying to win the affections of Veto. You know. A lot of people, like when I say, oh yeah, we met, kind of started talking in high school. They're like, oh, high school sweethearts. I'm like, no, no. And that's not the case. Veto made sure of that. We were not high school sweethearts. But when I, and through this, that process, I was, I was trying to pursue her and engage with her, but in 2010, we were, I think we were sitting maybe right there or somewhere else. There's peas there. Pastor Mike teached, taught rather, he taught on Luke chapter 10, or verses 38 through 42. And we've heard this story before. It's uh, when Mary and, and Mary and Martha are, are at their house, right? And uh, Jesus went on, he went on their way. Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she said to her sister Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching, but Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve all alone? Tell her then to help me. And the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. Basically, he's like, Martha, chill, chill out. For Mary has chosen the much better portion. Which is, of course, sitting at the feet of Jesus, enjoying his presence. And I'll never forget this. He said, don't get, and, and this might be true, you know, a lot of times, even our own ministry, our own, the way that we serve the Lord, sometimes we get so caught up in the work of the Lord that we forget the Lord of the work. Right? I love how, as we finish, I love how this is put into perspective later on in the book of Revelation. So if we go to Revelation chapter 4, and if you read Revelation 1 through, through, through chapter 5, you can read how all of these events unfold. And so John's on Patmos, Jesus comes, some to write some stuff down, and after he finishes addressing the seven churches, there are specific you know, words that he gives to them. He says, okay, now I'm going to take you with me up to heaven. 
And so he takes them in the spirit and it says that, that there's an open door and they walk through this open door and when John walks in, he's, he just sees this incredible scene unfold in front of him. There's, there's 24 thrones with 24 elders dressed with robes and, and crowns and there's myriads and myriads, just a ton of angels and living things and there's four really unusual looking living creatures that are surrounding the throne and there's a glassy sea and an emerald rainbow and all of these things are going on and in the center of everything is seated God on the throne. And if we start in verse 6, second half of verse 6, chapter 4, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes, in front and behind. The first living creature, like a lion. I mean, this is, imagine this, right? Weird, I think. The first living creature, like a lion. The second living creature, like an ox. The third living creature, with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. So many would say that all their eyes, all, all of their eyes that are covering their bodies and everything, speak of their very extensive knowledge and, and, and perception and, ability, and, and their ability to understand things. They're, they're very intelligent. They get it. They're not dumb. And in all of their understanding and in all of their knowledge and in all of their ability to perceive and, and understand, what do they do? Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Ever since the beginning of their beginning, they, that's all they do. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then the elders have their own song that they're singing, Right? Down in verse 11, Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And then in chapter 5 of verse 1, Then, this is John saying, Then I saw on the right hand of him, seated on the throne, a scroll, in the right hand of God, and written within and on the back, sealed with seven, sealed with seven seals. And I like to think about like the scroll being like a, like a piece of papyrus, you know, like a piece of parchment that's like rolled up and then the seals you know, like from medieval times you see in the movies all the time where they have like the wax and then they have those seals that they stamp it all with that's just for your benefit if you're imagining this you can imagine it like that that's how I do um, and I saw a mighty angel in verse 2 proclaiming with a loud voice who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals and then John of course says and no one very dramatic, in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Oh. And one of the elders said to me, Hey, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and break its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, Jesus. And there's all these imageries to depict and represent different things about, about Jesus. And it was seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll 
from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they began to sing a new song. Ever since the beginning, they were singing their own songs. And then when Jesus comes into the picture, they start singing a new song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on earth. Everybody was so caught up and captivated and, and overwhelmed about the scroll. Who's going who's gonna to open the scroll? Who's going to be worthy to take it and to break its seals? Because if you read the rest of Revelations, every time a seal would be broken, one of the seven, it would release more visions and it would teach John more things to write down that, that reference to what would happen in the future. And when they're looking at this scroll and they're like, no one's worthy to take it or to open it. And when Jesus comes into the picture, all attention is diverted away from the scroll. It doesn't matter anymore. And it's put on to Jesus. They don't even care about the scroll anymore. They're just enamored by the one who is worthy to take the scroll. And this is what happens. If you can say that you're, I've said this three times, if you can say with confidence that I am in the family of God, that I am a new creation, behold, old things are gone, new things have come. We understand this. Whenever we hear the gospel for the first time and it makes sense to us and, and we ingest this life that's found in Christ. All of these other things just kind of fizzle away. They don't seem to matter. We just want to know the person who is worthy to take our scrolls, so to say. And we all have our scrolls. It could be sin, such the stuff that you struggle with. Maybe it's just a really stressful situation. Hard trials in your, in your marriages, in your relationships. Maybe it's with your children. Maybe it's good stuff in nature, like your work or relationships. Maybe it's even your ministry. But so often, we get so fixated on the scroll. How are we going to address this problem? How are we going to fix this? How are we going to make this right? And we get self-help books, and we get involved in accountability groups. All good stuff. I'm not trying to to minimize their importance and their place that they have in ministry. But through all of this, we forget why we're even doing it to begin with. And my challenge to you today, just as King David prayed in Psalm 139, that you would, whether it's right now or if it's while you're driving home, or maybe when you have some, some quiet time later on today, when you're in the quietness of, of your home or whatever, when you can talk to God and say, Search my heart, O God. And know my thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me. And then lead me in the way of everlasting. There's all things that we struggle with in here. And each and every one of us in his own and her own way has, has strayed away from this first love that Jesus addressed to the church in Ephesus. We are like the church in Ephesus. Return to the love you had at first. Repent and do the works you did at first. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much, Lord, that we're able to be in your love. God, I pray that we would never lose the wonder of what it means to be caught in your grace, to be in your family, Lord. 
Lord, in this miraculous and incredible ability that we have to be able to come to you and talk to you. Just like in the old, the old covenant when Moses walked up to Mount Sinai and the people stood around the base of the mountain and they marveled as Moses walked up there because they knew that he was going up there to talk to you. And whenever they, the Israelites were going through the wilderness and they would set up the tent of meeting, every time Moses would go in, a pillar of cloud would come over and people would stand around the tent and, and marvel because they knew that you were in there talking to Moses just like a friend talks face to face with another friend. And out in the new covenant, we're able to at any point enter into your presence and talk to you and enjoy you. Lord, may we never lose the wonder of what it means to simply enjoy being with you. So I ask that you would restore to us the joy of your salvation, that you would revive us once again, that you would search our hearts, know all of our anxious thoughts, see if there is any offensive way in us, and then lead us in the way of everlasting. We need you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.